Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rod Fields. I'm Chief Medical Officer for Population Health at Mount Sinai. Today, I have Dr. Jay Wisnicki with me, uh, who um, I've heard a lot about from our provider relations team and has a long history in New York and uh, has built some really amazing services downtown, but also emphasizing where we are today um, is a really great new facility in East Harlem. So thanks for your time. So thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about, you, uh, you were sharing a little bit of your story in New York and, and how you've come to this place. If you can share a little bit of that with us, I think that'd be great. Sure. So I'm happy to do that. So again, thanks for having me. So uh, I don't know where I'm going to start, but I often say <laughs> that I was born at Mount Sinai and yeah. I'm not sure that counts on my resume for much, but That's right. I was born there and then I left for a, quite a while and somebody told me I'd be back at Mount Sinai. Years later, I wouldn't have known, but I am a native New Yorker. Um, and ended up doing my residency there and then mm-hmm. left. And never expected to come back to New York or not, but got recruited back and was full-time based at Beth Israel for pretty much most of my career. Um, and then in 2009 to 10, entered into, dis- into the discussions with the hospital, we ended up privatizing our department. Mm-hmm. And we did that and started operation there nine years ago in, 2000, in the summer of 2010. Um, And our practice really, historically, was a hospital-based practice. We saw clinic patients, Mm -hmm. Medicaid patients, private pay patients, all socioeconomic classes, the whole diversity of New York in the same setting back when I was at the hospital for much of my career. And so that same philosophy was indoctrinated into me for quite a long time. So I started looking for space, found it right nearby. We wanted to be right close Mm -hmm. to where we were, so we moved, created a new space, 7,000 square feet, large space. We see almost 40,000 patient visits a year there, still not on a capacity, and created a, a facility for the purpose of seeing all patients in the same place. And mm-hmm. still to this day, see every type of New Yorker from every diversity of socioeconomic background, every payer mix, every kind of uh, ophthalmologic problem, yeah. all in the same place, same doctors. Same uh, people on the attendings on the staff, very experienced people. Yeah. Um, and also get resident rotations with us, do some research projects as right. well. It's kind of a very academic practice for private practice. Yeah. And it, can I ask you, mm-hmm. before sure. we move on from that, cause talk, but that, that's so key. I know a lot of folks that are, are listening mm-hmm. come from academic centers where sure. the trend, mm-hmm. as we talked about briefly before, is separating faculty practice from resident practice and having what amounts to a two-tiered system. And, and it, it exists at Sinai just as it, ex- as it exists sure. in almost every other academic setting. And you guys purposely built this with a contrary sort of culture to that. You're, you're, it's a, um, how do you manage that differently? Or do you feel like you had to train your staff differently? Or you mentioned maybe recruiting differently. I would challenge any place that doesn't do that mm-hmm. to what's the core mission. Right. Take care of people. Yeah. Why would you take care of people in different places? For the most part, it involves, in addition to that, sometimes extra resources. You build sure. two different centers for the same thing. Yeah. Um, whatever the whether it's an ophthalmology or any any other specialty, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. So I would challenge them to rethink that, mm-hmm. because you can do training regardless of you know if somebody has a certain medical condition, it doesn't matter what they're whether they were born wealthy or not, yeah. whether they were born speaking a certain language or not. Right. I mean, there are other issues that they have to deal with. But take care of everybody, you know. It's yeah. my parents were immigrants to this country. Take care of them. Yeah. Period. And the challenges are 
that many people aren't used to that. Mm-hmm. So getting people, um, providers and others, into that mindset. You know, someone at the front desk, they're seeing whoever's coming in. Mm-hmm. The administrators, they're dealing with other issues. Providers, you know, doctors, uh, it really doesn't take a lot to make them to sign on to this. Yeah. You have to figure out the compensation formula so it's fair and even. Yeah. So they're comfortable. And if they're paid market value or better for what they're doing, in the end, they don't care. Yeah. In fact, they prefer it. They don't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah. Do you ever find that you got pushbacks, pushback from the rich folks coming in, uh, being in the same And we uh, we hear that, that, that from often from systems saying, well, you know, the reason, reason we designed mm-hmm. it is to create a different feel yep. because the patient. Yep. Do you ever, so do you want to coddle people who need to feel like they're in a fancy in yeah. Park Avenue environment? And by the way, just by chance, our office downtown is on Park <laughs> Avenue, south, whatever. <laughs> At least that's the address. But it's. The clinic feel happens because of congestion in an office. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting in an office with different types of patient populations, mm-hmm. but there's lots of room, meaning there's, you know, the, every chair isn't full and there's standing room only, Yeah, that's what creates the clinic feel. Yeah. So if you have a lot of people you want to coddle, rich people, whatever it is, yeah. but every single chair is taken and standing room only, they're going to feel a clinic feel to it. Yeah. So in my mind, that's not who's there, but how many are there yeah. at a time. Yeah. Um, and that's when people feel, well, this is a clinic. I also have some people who will tell me, I'm so glad that you see everybody here, even though they can afford to go anywhere. Yeah. I don't know if that's the majority. I've never done a survey yeah, of knows? any kind or sure. whatever. But there are people who don't want to come, and there are people who don't want to be in a larger office. Right. Right? Right. So no matter what, if they want a little boutique, small practice. It's not for them. And I'll send them. There's right. plenty of people to go around, and there's plenty of people who need care. Right. So if somebody wants to have cataract surgery by a small one-doctor, two-doctor office right. with a small spending and a small waiting room and whatever else, okay, yeah. here's who you see. Yeah. And tell them I sent you or not, and they'll take care of you. And it seems like some of the things you were describing before we started recording about the structure of the new venture, and I interrupted mm-hmm. you before you got there, but there's also about the customer service piece right so you talked a little about the layout and and not having it feel crowded and the spacing that's important but also i imagine there's a customer service component that's independent of who walks in the door right so the nature of the internet in the world is that everything is an instant thing today (laughs) so regardless of who's there right who excuse me who you're seeing sure nobody wants to wait right so waiting makes it all feel like a customer service thing Mm -hmm. so what do people want they want access Mm -hmm. to to get in and in our offices, we take same-day appointments. We take mm-hmm. no appointments, meaning walk-ins. Whenever mm-hmm. you want, come in. Period. Mm-hmm. End of story. Um, most people do have appointments, but sure. you know the no-show rate is what it is anyway. So yeah, you right. Know, right. come and get seen. Right. What's the difference? We're right. going to see you anyway. We'll figure it out. Right. Um, and the need to take care of people and meet their expectations is sometimes challenging mm-hmm. and sometimes not. And it's all based on waiting time, mm-hmm. not getting bills unexpectedly, although our healthcare system is difficult at making that, allowing mm-hmm. that to happen. Yeah, right. Um, and just if they do have issues, addressing them, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. people have their expectations and you try to meet them. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and I, and I mm-hmm. apologize, I interrupted you before. You, so you, you created this the clinic and then kind of let us... We start. created a center downtown. And that center has been very successful. It's been open since 2010. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, Mount Sinai decided strategically that most of their ophthalmology, their ophthalmology services 
will be based at the main center at the New York Eye Infirmary of Mount Sinai downtown on 14th Street, right. very close to our current office, and we've been closely affiliated with that center yeah. for a long time. We do our, lots of our surgery there. Um, and so uptown, there was a need in the East Harlem community, close to the main hospital of Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And we had discussions that were very collaborative about creating a center up here. And as we did that, we decided to, um, with Mount Sinai's suggestion and support, to create a freestanding New York State Certified Diagnostic and Treatment Center mm-hmm. here. Um, there are some benefits to the state. There's benefits to the population. There's benefits also to the practice for doing that. Um, and create a center here for ophthalmic care. And in that process, and that application was just a little tedious, you know, as, <laughs> as they should be. You mentioned 350 pages, as you mentioned. 349, yeah. but I, I, I say 350, <laughs> but yes, 349. Full analysis of the, of the community, of the need, wow. these kinds of sorts, and it's reviewed by the state. We have consultants helping with us. We have yep. letters of support from medical leaders in the community. Yeah. Um, but that process, we found that we're the only ophthalmologists in the whole zip code. And I've done mission work all over the world. Mm-hmm. I've done teaching in Asia, in Africa, all mm-hmm. over the world. You don't need a passport to come to Harlem. Mm-hmm. And so it was surprising to me that there's a need here. Yeah. Or not just a need, but there's no ophthalmologist here. It seems right. like after 96th Street, yeah, sure. it just stops. It cares. And Harlem is not the community it was years ago. Right. Um, it was interesting. I was giving a talk early this morning to a federally qualified health center, community health center in the area. Mm-hmm. And... What I realized is that my parents, my father, who's an immigrant to this country after World War II, opened his first little factory, a small one, even though the word factory sounds big, two blocks away from there in Harlem. Oh, wow. And I remember as a little kid, because there were kind of, the crime rate was not so perfect back then in Harlem in the area. So he actually ended up moving his practice to Yonkers. I grew up in the Bronx, so he moved it to Yonkers. Um, And... But I remember up until age seven, I'd come to this place. Yeah. And, you know, the building is not there anymore. It's since been something else. Sure. But it's, you know, it's a great place to be. Yeah, you have history here. It's a great place. The community is rece- well-receiving from the, the, the police precinct to the medical community to the political community. It, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. And you opened in January? We opened at the very end of December. Okay. Barely. Gotcha. But really, we opened <laughs> kind of in January, and it's sure. been coming along. But, you know, you have to, the community has to get to know you. Yeah. So we don't have a huge volume yet, but we're seeing 20 to 30 patients today. The capacity is about 150. Yeah. Even if we got to 100, it'll be just fine. Yeah. And it'll happen. It will Just happen. a matter of when. Yeah. And, you know, we've had, we've spent a couple of dollars just to make this happen. So we're eager to get it going. No, of course. But, but having experiences this, it will. Yeah. No, of course. Um, we, we didn't talk about this in, in advance, mm. but the... Establishing in a, in a community that has significant need, um, that also likely has experiences with health systems. I'll say just generically, globally, whether it's an academic center like Sinai, mm-hmm. but also even community programs that are grant funded and come and go. Do you have a sense that, uh, it, and you kind of alluded to it just a second ago, there's a sense of trust that has to be established in a community like this, in particular? So, no doubt, there is certainly suspicion of large organizations. Yeah. We even heard from patients are you owned by Mount Sinai and they actually wouldn't like yeah. they seem yeah, like yeah. that's a negative right. thing. Right. Not because that Mount Sinai can't create a great, uh, as good or better service than we create here just yeah. because there's suspicion yeah. of that. Yeah. And so the fact that we're independent it was actually surprising to me to hear from patients that oh we're glad you're on thing you came to the community we're, we're very welcomed here. Yeah. Both by the patient population 
by the community and yeah. by the provider population, by the right. physicians. Right. I mean, you know, people like coming right here. We could give everybody a metro card. Come right down, we're right on the train line. Right. You know, the subway to the other office. Right. They get there, but people don't want to do that. Yeah, they want to come in their community. Yeah, they want to come, exactly. Yeah. They want to be here and we'll yeah. walk. Yeah. I know that uh, you guys have done uh, a lot of work on, you know, on the population health stuff we do. We talked about there are a, a few metrics that, that we often concentrate in terms of retinopathy screening, other things related to the eye that you guys have been great partners on. But you mentioned as you're giving us the tour about your belief in connection to primary care and, and you have a background in IT and, and data and sharing that information in the interoperability piece with your EMR. Tell me a little bit about your work there and, and your belief systems around that. So if somebody asked me when I was growing up if, if i go into medicine, my brothers would laugh. I have two brothers. They'd laugh at that because I was a computer geek and an electrical engineer <laughs> before there was even the PC. Right. And got trained as an electrical engineer and was all into that. Went to yeah. Bronx Science, went to engineering school. Yeah. Ended up going to medical school. And I've always looked at trying to combine those fields. Mm-hmm. In a hospital, it's a little hard to do because there's bureaucracy and there's mm-hmm. other missions of IT for everybody, not just for ophthalmology. Right. So when you go out on your own, you have the freedom of whatever you can do, need to do that's ethical and legal and you can fund, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can't do that in a hospital system, understandably. Mm-hmm. So we created, and one of the first things we did is get an EMR that gives feedback to our providers. And everybody ignores primary care doctors who are specialists. Everybody. Mm-hmm. So getting, maybe less so these days, but getting a EMR that can give feedback to doctors quickly and easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, initially it came by fax because that's sure, the, fa- that's that's the fancy network these days right, right. Of, of medicine, <laughs> right. the fax machine, the fax which machine. is, I think you can see it when you go to the Smithsonian <laughs> and one, down one of the aisles, but it's the only, you know, it's HIPAA compliant, it's, it's secure, sure. theoretically, who right, knows how right, secure it really is, yeah, but, right. <clears throat> but it's accepted. Sure. And so we moved to an EMR, Athena Health, which we are very happy with, mm-hmm. uh, both in their practice management system, their patient engagement, and in, uh, and in their clinical uh, uh, electronic health record that is particularly good at interoperability. Certainly it's required because we're now a Department of Health certified facility, but even not, our downtown facility is not that, and it's not a requirement, but, it's my, requir- it. but it's my requirement. Yeah, right. I want to give feedback appropriately and quickly to referring doctors. Right and help them in their scores. So for, for example, there are various metrics, one of which is diabetics getting seen. Mm-hmm. We've taken some primary care practices and brought them on a scale of one to five from about a one to a five in three months just by helping them ensure yep. the best they can. Compliance is an issue and also people forget about the fact sometimes that even though you can screen somebody, if they have disease, they need to get seen. Right. And we can see it all and even if we can't see it all, having been in New York for so much of my, my whole career, I know ophthalmologists right. in every academic center and in private practice throughout right. the area. So somebody calls me and says, you know, if we find out a patient that needs to get seen in Westchester or in Brooklyn or something, or a service that we can't provide, let's say we don't do ocular oncology as an example, or sure. neuro-ophthalmology, I'll call them up and get them in. Yeah. This is relationship-based, right? It's all based, if I've been successful, it's not because I'm smart or anything. I've been in the same place for a while. I haven't moved around much. <laughs> Maybe in structure a little bit, but, you know, I've been in Manhattan my whole career. Right. It it is it strikes me kind of a funny as a side note about uh, you know I think folks that have never lived in New York uh, I think underappreciate the um, the importance of relationships in a city this big. 
Uh, maybe even more so. I would than think, I think it's true everywhere, but I've never really lived anywhere. Else. I, I think it is true <laughs> everywhere. Uh, but New York is so complicated to navigate. As an outsider, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. that it, it is interesting how much even how much more value there is in those relationships that you, you know someone like yourself has established. Look, we had an issue. You heard you heard right. it earlier with our phone lines of all things because of a court going down yesterday for incoming calls. Can mm-hmm. you imagine a medical practice? We use patients, oh my gosh. Yeah. patients with right. surgery right. before the surgery, afterwards, trying to get through. It went down for a whole, and we have so so much backup that that doesn't happen. So, without getting giving any privacy away, one of our patients is a high level person at Verizon. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to figure out a bureaucracy. Right, it's all relationships. It's our relationship up, based. We'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. Period. We, yeah. Same thing when we had to hook up our Con Edison gas meter here. We had all these issues. Right. We opened up doing it, so somebody we know is high up at Con Edison. Right. So, you know, it's like <laughs> it's whatever. The way it works. It's the way it works. Yeah. Police department everywhere else. You kind of, yeah. and it's not what I can get from you. I'd rather have chips where I give things to you. Yeah. I mean, I've had a great, well, you know, successful, wonderful career. If I can help somebody, what more is it? Yeah. Than what that? more? Yeah. And, and so one of the things that we've tried in the network, and we've done a couple podcasts on provider engagement, and increasingly what, what we're trying to emphasize with the team, sorry, I would say it's always been there, but really emphasize it over the last year or two, is this is, this is a relationship business. How do we move folks from practices that um, were not purpose-built to do population health and serve in particular high-risk underserved folks, and we're trying to transform, whether it's a solo practice independent doc or a complicated academic center to population health. And it's a whole different way of doing things. And you can't do that without relationships, right? Because it doesn't, it's not a flip of a switch. You, you have to understand where people are coming from, know, um, know what drives them to do the work they do and how to make it sustainable for them. That sometimes for folks listening that are working in pop health is particularly challenging with specialists. And so I'm in for lots of reasons, but um, I'm curious as to your thoughts as a specialist, your views on this, you know, transformation in healthcare. I mean, it's a transformation, but we've done this before in some ways. We're in the '90s and managed care and things like that. But um, do you, what is your view on how to get specialists engaged? How would you advise us or other folks working on population health to? kind of get the specialists engaged in, in that work and working with our primary care docs to get to those goals. So if that was my, if I was hired to do something like that, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd take the job because it's a very, <laughs> I, I, will, I do have an answer to I your, already I, took I, it, I so it's too late. Answer, <laughs> I don't have an answer to your question, but I think it's a very difficult challenge. Doctors feel overwhelmed. They're too busy. You get an email from them for something like this, they don't be, you know, they don't have the delete button. They just ignore it. No, right, you have right. so much going on, right. like, leave me alone. It's like enough already. So I think a couple of things I can tell you from experience Mm -hmm. and some things I can tell you how to consider that, how to engage specialists when you need them for certain things, whether it's podiatrists for foot care. I mean, all the various things you need specialists for. So first, it's hard to change behavior, whether it's old dogs or young dogs. It's hard to change behavior. It's hard to change in any industry, not just in healthcare, but in any field, Um, and especially with Doctors feeling so overwhelmed and overcome by rules and regulations, health careers like, leave me alone. So I'm going to give you one example that's impractical, mm-hmm. that I don't think you can do easily, but how I approach that. Sure. And one another way I think you can do it. Mm-hmm. So the, the one that I don't think you can do is that try to imagine I had a ophthalmology department, small one. We're seeing in the range of 15,000 patient visits a year. 
and we decide to privatize it, becomes my private practice, and in one swoop, I can redesign the whole practice. Yeah, it costs money to do it, mm-hmm. but there's no HR issues with um, inviting the employees that were hospital employees to come work with us in the new practice, whether they were physicians or otherwise. It's not like I have to fire anybody. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to. I can do a whole transformation or reorganization in one shot. Mm-hmm. So you create a specialty center from scratch to the new model. That's the impractical yeah. approach because I was able to address all these things, yep. whether it's the EMR feedback to patients, yep. um, which systems we're using, which staff we're using, right. where it's going to be, right. phone answering, everything, all in one shot. Yeah, purpose built to do this thing, and a whole redesign based on my experience. Yeah, so that's really a great way to do it. Sure. Easier said than done, and it requires money and people yeah. and things like that. Sure. The more practical way to do this is take the specialists that are potentially more involved, mm-hmm. and you divide and conquer. Try to get a couple that will, I mean, let's say you have, I don't know, 50, 100, whatever the number in a certain specialty yeah. you have. Right. They're not all going to come on at once to your different way of thinking. Right. Get a couple of them that might influence the others, because a lot of things happen in the surgical locker room or a mo- or the or the medical you know in the, the, the physician the physician lounge yeah, right. where someone talks and I said I'm doing this with them so you are maybe I should do that too because mm-hmm. there's a lot of it's not so much testimonials mm-hmm. but when physicians speak to their colleagues that they tr- friends that they trust all of a sudden people listen more yeah so you try to break off of, I mean it's not I, divide and conquer sounds a little bit too you know, too strong. Yeah. You try to find a couple of different Finding practices. Finding right? A champion. Yeah. They do that, and then ask them to spread the word among their colleagues because mm-hmm. they'll do it better. They have more relationships, Absolutely. as you pointed out, to Absolutely. doing that. And that may take a little time and effort, but it'll be worth it it'll in the be long worth run. It. That, that makes a ton of sense. And, I, um, you know, I think mm-hmm. that I think all, a lot of folks leading large pop health entities struggle with the boil the ocean problem and forget that sometimes you you know it takes the time it takes you got to chip away there's no short there aren't shortcuts to do this work you got it's hard to do that away. and you can't do everything at once right yeah it's too much it's too much well dr wisnicki i really appreciate your time and uh it's been a really great conversation and um i know i got a lot of, out of it and i know the folks that are in my position other institutions will will get a lot out of it as well I really appreciate your work that you're doing here in harlem as well let me ask you now a question. Oh, please. I'm ready. <laughs> so having been at this for a lot of your career, but yeah. in New York, not quite as long. Right. What are the things that you think have been the greatest challenges mm-hmm. in the short time you've been here? What mm-hmm. successes have you had? Mm-hmm. What failures have you had? And how can people like me help you? Yeah. Well, I think um, it's interesting. There are I think more similarities than there are differences coming from semi-rural North Carolina to hyper-urban New York. Um, I I think, for example, we approach pop health, um, as I hope most people that do this work do, um, from the whole person standpoint, meaning that if we're going to drive outcomes and really keep people out of the hospital and then have that be financially sustainable for, for healthcare in general, um, we're we're sort of being too reactive in that work if we're only concentrating on healthcare complications and readmissions and things like that. We're looking at we need to look at drivers of what you know drives folks to the hospital, and I often refer to it going back to like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right? It's 
uh, as a primary care physician, I could talk to people all day long about their diabetes and making sure they take care of their insulin. But if they go home and can't afford food or can't afford their insulin, I might as well be talking to the wall. That's not important to them because it's not where their needs are. And so that is true whether it's, you know, a population of 1,000 in some rural county in North Carolina or hyper-urban New York. You can't approach people uh, with, I want to, you should, you should do X, Y, Z to manage your condition without really trying to assess who they are, what are their needs as individuals, as people, as human beings, and then try to figure out how we can address those person by person. There's no shortcut, and that's true anywhere. Um the, the things that are incredibly challenging is, uh, you know, I think other folks that are listening are coming from large academic centers. It, it's a struggle to get a, a large, to your point, you know, there's a bureaucracy of a, any large corporation, but then there's the academic bureaucracy. On top of that, it's a massive amount of culture change for a system that's 160 years old, something like that. Um, I think that that's the that is a struggle every day is more on the cultural side and it and it is about building you know one-on-one relationships and just doing that work of getting out in the meeting with docs and trying to tell the story in a way that seems to resonate with them um, and it'll, it'll take years um, we're already so seeing uh, in terms of successes we are seeing a change in language and culture around our primary care physicians and even some of our departmental leaders within the system about saying Gosh, if we think that the interaction between primary care and specialists are the key to making this work and, and empower primary care to do more and manage patients and all those things, um, we can't drive, we can't, it, it doesn't function very well in a pure volume system, right? Um, so we're, I think, having really positive conversations about rethinking things like comp models and really changing the structure of delivery, is in particular in primary care, that kind of bears a big chunk of that burden. Um, so we're seeing some successes in language and culture. And, and uh, by the way, we're also starting to see some reductions in utilization uh, over these first you know, couple of years that we're doing it, which is pretty exciting. Um, significant, uh, significant reductions in inpatients per thousand and things like that. Um, so I say we're not where we want to be yet because you know, the, the bar, we were starting from a, you know, a different place. So it'll be years, but we are starting to see changes in that language culture and, and then actually some outcome changes already, which is great. So it's fun. Well, just <clears throat> excuse me, just to commend you for everything that you do and whatever towards the mission, and anything I can do to help, call collect. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate your time. Thank you again. And uh, if, for those listening, if you have ideas for a future podcast, please please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Thanks for listening. 